The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Keep or Cut podcast. I'm your host, Pete Ball, joined as always by Chad Young. It is episode 51. We're over the 50 episode mark, and there is no shortage of news lately, Chad, is there? No, I mean, the, the last couple times we've been talking, there's the only news has been like, maybe the lockout will end. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, there's, there's actual news. There's players changing teams. There's trades. There's free agent signings. I mean, so we're recording this on Saturday the 19th. It is 6.41 in the morning for me in Seattle. As I was going to bed last night at like, I don't know, it was like 11.30 my time. So it was like 2.30 Eastern. News breaks that Carlos Correa is going to Minnesota. It's like, what more can you ask for than like a 2.30 in the morning <laughs> news news break of, a, you know, one of, the, one of the star players in the league signing a deal in an unexpected place with a team that doesn't usually shell out. Like, this is fun. I'm having fun. I'd be having more fun if the Guardians would do literally anything. They don't have to do something <laughs> big. They could assign Jock Peterson for $6 million. They could like trade for a middle reliever. Like just do something. Well, yeah, I've had so much excitement over here because we signed Jake Diekman. So it's pretty Hansel electric. Robles too. Hansel Robles. Oh, wow. Yes, good point. And we can't forget Matt Strom either. So I think clearly the losses of Eduardo Rodriguez, Kyle Schwarber, and Hunter Renfro are now redeemed. And we will once again return to being within two games of the World okay. Series without a doubt. You also got Jackie Bradley Jr. back. Yeah, that's that's actually a net negative. So we're further away. <laughs> so maybe it'll be three games away from the World Series this year. But no, things have not been good in Boston either. It's this same old song and dance. As, as it feels like with all of our teams now here in Boston that like we're in on this player, we're in on this player, we're in on this player, and we literally get none of them. And it's turning out to be the same way. I, I'm holding out hope that they'll land Trevor Story. I'm checking Twitter and refreshing Twitter like religiously over the last 24 hours. But honestly, with Correa signing, I don't I think all of a sudden that's expanded Story's market. And I find it much more likely that he's going to end up in Houston, then in Boston, I still think the Yankees are too similar to us at this point where they're also not really willing to spend, even though they're apparently willing to pay for all of Josh Donaldson's contract. But I say Houston, Chad, because apparently last night when Yuli Gurriel was talking to Carlos Correa and it Correa kind of broke to him that he was going to be going to Minnesota, that 
Guriel was surprised, and I don't think Guriel would have been surprised unless the money was close, or unless the money was not close, I should say. So the fact that he was surprised tells me that maybe it was a little close, and he was like, oh, Carlos is going to come back, and he still chose to leave to go to Minnesota anyway. And so if Houston is willing to spend that much money on a shortstop, and now they have a, an opening, I know Houston fans are pretty excited about oh, the names escaping me. Jeremy Pena. Jeremy Pena. Yes, I know he's been moving up draft boards, but it's kind of felt like Houston's a landing spot all along for for story. So, yeah, I don't know if you saw uh, Chris Clegg, who I know you are a fan of, who we've had on the show, who I am a fan of, tweeted out this morning or yesterday when there were, when the news broke that not about Correa, but about Jeremy Pena being sort of the presumptive front runner for the starting shortstop job. His response that he, he quote tweeted the news and said, based on the response to this, I don't think Houston fans realize just how good Jeremy Pena is, which that's a that's a, a solid endorsement, I think, for for him. I don't think it means that they are not in on story, but I, I do think I think part of the reason they were. I mean, up until the last week, it didn't seem like Correa back to Houston was even remotely possible. And so my sense is that the reason they were okay with that was because they believe that strongly in Pena, that they think they're ready to hand him the job and things will be fine. Not fine as in we won't miss Correa because Jeremy Pena could be very, very good without being that, but good enough that I think they, they're comfortable with him as their starter. So they may be in on story, but I don't know that they feel anxious, desperate. I don't, I don't think that they need to go get him. I think the interesting question is going to be, if Houston's in on him and he becomes sort of the last gasp for Boston, the last gasp for New York, San Francisco supposedly interested. There's a few other teams that might be interested in him. Does he, d- did Correa choose the exact wrong moment and miss the crazy deal Seager got before everybody else came off the board that I think Texas handed out to try to get Seager to sign quickly? And does he miss the desperation last deal that Story gets because everyone's like, this is it. If we don't get him, we've lost. I'm sort of fascinated to see that. There's a bunch of other stuff going on with the Korea contract, though, like the opt-outs that he has. There's a weird situation where he changed agents in the middle of the offseason. And so had he signed like a 10-year, $250 million deal this offseason, let's say, a chunk of that goes to his old agent, not to his new agent, who is Scott Boris. By signing the deal he just signed, whatever deal he signs next is just Boris, which means that he can opt out after this year, sign the same deals he could have gotten this offseason potentially, but his agent gets more money. And so it's a it's a little bit of like a weird situation where I, I wonder if he was I wonder if his agents were overly optimizing for him being back on the market next year. Because it seems like this know. deal is, just, is designed for that. Maybe, but that's a risky move if you're if you're Carlos Correa. And and maybe there was a conversation he had with Boris before he even hired him where Boris was like, look, I'll take you on as a client, but like here's where I am and this is kind of my expectation. Because if any agent in baseball has that kind of power, it's Scott Boris. But I, and obviously I've been, I've been reading about that since really the free since he made the switch at agent. That just feels risky for a player who's missed a lot of time. And he's like hitting free agency at this perfect spot where it's his prime, right? He is one of the rare 
prime age free agents like Corey Seager, actually, who could really cash in. And I know the market kind of missed him, or I guess he kind of missed the market. Maybe he misread it. Who knows? But that still feels like a really risky decision. So maybe that is why he built in the options so that like, you know what, I can return for 30 million next year if it doesn't go the way I want it to go. That is kind of a way to, I guess, save himself. But if he really just took a shorter contract for Boris, I just have a hard time believing that for any player, but especially for one who's had the injury history he's had. Yeah, I don't think he did. I don't think it was like a favor to Boris. I want to be very clear. I don't think that. I think it's more that we know that anytime a contract is being negotiated, there are multiple parties that have an interest in that contract. Obviously, the player, the team, the agent is one of those parties. And consciously, subconsciously, deviously, or out in the open, an agent realizing that a one-year deal, like, I don't think I don't think Boris would have told them take a one-year deal from me. Do I think that Boris or some of Boris's people would have been more biased towards taking a one-year deal because of the implications it has for them? Yeah. And it may have been subconscious, but like, I don't know, if you were doing some sort of business deal and you could make 10 times as much money by by shortening it to a year and then doing another one next year, you're going to like, that's hard for that not to influence you. So I just, I don't know. It's, it's maybe that wasn't the thing. It doesn't feel like, like, I don't know. I, I look at the contracts going out this off season. It doesn't feel like teams are holding back. There, there are specific no teams way. that are, but like t- players are getting good contracts. They're getting contracts that are what they're worth, or in, in some cases, probably more than they're, you know, theoretically worth on the field. But I don't know. And the, the other the other thing that's been sort of just generally fun, I'll say. And, and Christopher Crawford, who I, I is a great follow on Twitter at Crawford underscore M I L B, because he does mostly prospect stuff. But he recently tweeted out that, you know, outside of maybe Seeger to the Rangers, I don't think I could have predicted any of the landing spots for the big names. And it sounds like Story won't land with someone I would have expected either. It's incredibly fun. Totally agree with that. One of the best things about this offseason, after, before and after the lockout, one of the best things about what we've seen is that, like, this hasn't been like, oh, of course Freeman's going to go back to the Braves and he goes back to the Braves. This isn't, this hasn't been like, you know, the Yankees are going to throw $300 million at Correa and so they throw $300 million. Like, this hasn't been the boring expected. This is where these guys are going to go. Almost everyone has landed somewhere that, that, three months ago you would have been like yeah that team might like i don't know even even the dodgers with all the money they have were you at any point like oh the dodgers are going to sign freddie freeman it was like the dodgers are have a stacked lineup they've got some questions in the rotation they're not going to spend on freddie freeman it doesn't even make sense plus why would freeman leave atlanta like all the like and yet there he is so i don't think i've ever ruled the dodgers I don't think I'd ever rule anybody out from signing with the Dodgers, to be fair. But sure. it, they definitely once once we started getting the vibes that Freddie Freeman's situation in Atlanta was was deteriorating and that the longer it went on, it felt like, oh, my God, he actually might not come back. Obviously, the Dodgers came to mind and it seemed like the Yankees were pretty pessimistic about their their chances anyway. But something you said <clears throat> a few minutes ago was talking about how like players are just getting more than what you'd expect. And I think that's definitely true of Matt Olson. And I love Matt Olson. He's a gold glove and and they just brought him in. He's a hometown kid, but that's a huge contract for a guy who's really had one year of elite production. And the most recent deal, other than Correa, of Nick Castellanos, right? Where 
like, look, I'm a big Castellanos fan when it comes to fantasy. But last year was his first year as a four-win player. According to Fangraph's war, he was a 4.2 war guy. Other than that, he's never come close to that because he's atrocious in the field. And as we know, baseball is moving in a direction where contracts are a lot more closely correlated with war. And yet Nick Castellanos not only got $100 million, but he got over five years. They're going to be paying him $20 million up until he's like 36. Now, obviously, the DH plays a part in that. But now they have like 60 H's over there in Philadelphia. So I think it is the teams are just more likely to spend now. I think contracts are going to continue to kind of look fat so long as teams feel like they continue to have this flexibility. I mean, of all the unexpected things that have happened, Philadelphia going over the luxury tax, even with Dave Dombrowski running the show, is pretty surprising. Yeah, super surprising. Now, I will say in, in Castellanos's defense, which is the only time defense will be used in a positive with Nick Castellanos for the next <laughs> five years, he has been worth more than $20 million. According to Fangraphs, he's been worth more than $20 million three of the last four years. The one year he wasn't was 2020, which is a whole other thing. Like, he basically needs to be an almost three-win player a year to earn out this contract. He doesn't have to be the 4.2-win player he was last year. On the other hand, he is legitimately atrocious defensively. And that team is going to be, I mean, from, from a fantasy perspective, this is a great landing spot for Castellanos. And maybe this is a, a perfect moment to transition to talking about that because I think it's an interesting one. Like, I was worried about Castellanos because he is... He has been a he has benefited from the park he has played in in a significant way over the last few years. And leaving Great American Ballpark was never going to be an easy thing to do because Great American Ballpark is an awesome place to hit. But Citizens Bank Ballpark is also a pretty great place to hit. And if you look at the park factors on Baseball Savant, that park is a 101 park factor for right-handed bats, whereas Great American is a 106. So Great American better, but not not crazily so. Even for home runs, Great American Ballpark is the third best ballpark for home runs for right-handed hitters at 129. Citizens Bank Ballpark is the seventh best at 113 park factor. So it is a step down. Almost anything was going to be a step down. Like There are very few places he was likely to land that would have been better for Castellanos. But Citizens Bank Ballpark is not a lot worse. I, I really, really like it from that perspective. I think it, it's a nice boost to his long-term value. I think it's unlikely he gets traded anytime soon. But man, they're going to have a bad defense in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's it's going to be a little ugly. They did steal Kyle Schwarber from the Red Sox, which I don't even want to talk about. But to be fair, before I take a question, and you're right, the ballpark is a... a, a a slight downgrade, but according to Savant's expected home runs by park, he would have finished with the same amount of home runs as last year. So I I'm with you in that. Like it's actually kind of exciting. I think when you consider lineup, like it might actually be an upgrade. Yeah. I mean, for, for five by five, I think that's true. You know, in, in any sort of like, I'm not a big believer that lineup drastically impacts the quality of a hitter, but it certainly impacts the number of runs and RBIs for a guy. So yeah. from that perspective, yeah, I think it's definitely, it's definitely an upgrade. Although, I don't know. I mean, Votto was really good last year. Winker was good when he was playing. But yeah, no, it's still an upgrade. You still have Schwarber and Hoskins and Harper, of course, hitting around him. Like, that's that's an yeah, upgrade. Roster resource has Schwarber leadoff and Harper right behind him. I don't know. There's very few spots in lineups in baseball that are going to be better than that spot right there. 
So he, you're saying he Harper in the two spot, Castellanos in the three spot, Hoskins hitting fourth. No, uh, it was. <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna double check it to make sure, but I'm pretty sure it is Schwarber leadoff, Castellanos second, Harper third, Hoskins fourth. In which case, yeah, that's what roster resource has it as. Actually, no, they have Real Muto cleanup, Hoskins fifth. How many spots in baseball are better than Nick Castellanos batting behind Schwarber and in front of Bryce Harper? I mean, that's that's a slam dunk. 200 runs plus RBI slam dunk. Yeah, I would think so. I, if, if I were the Phillies, I'd be flipping Harper and Castellanos, letting Harper hit second and just giving him those extra plate appearances. But I don't, what's the opposite of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? Like we talk <laughs> saw, about rearranging so the deck chairs on the Titanic is like the like, oh, the, like <laughs> it's like, you know, the Rockies signing Bryant is like, yeah, your ship's going down, but now you now that you you made the deck chairs look nicer, so that's good. But like, that what's was having op- an edible what's arrangements like? sent to the Titanic, yeah. yeah. But like, there's got to be an opposite of that where you're like, you're doing something that's an utterly meaningless, like flipping Castellanos and Harper is like, okay, fine, put them in whatever order you want. But it's not yeah. because it's such a bad situation; it's because it's such a good situation that you can just like, it's like changing you your hotel room at the Bellagio. <laughs> That's, that's, right. that's what I'm going to go with. Yeah. Okay. Let's go with it. Sure. Why so not? The, for, I saw that phrase for the first time ever, actually, last week. I've never heard that before. And it was about the Yankees going from, you know, Sanchez and Urshela to Kiner Falefa and their new catcher. And I just thought that was, yeah, it killed me. Killed me. So let me ask a question. I think, I think we can, we can say that for Schwarber, it's similar to Castellanos. Like, this is a great landing spot for him, great lineup, great park to hit in, especially if he's leading off, which, one of the fun things in Philadelphia is that like they don't have a traditional leadoff guy. And so they are perfectly positioned to put a high on base power bat there, which is awesome. Yeah. Cleveland did that for a while with, with Carlos Santana. And I love it when teams do that. So thrilled to see that great landing spot for both of them. I think it's good. They're, they're both their long-term. So if you're in keeper leagues, you're not on new leagues. These are guys that you can now, I think count on for a few years and not have to worry about this again. Are you downgrading Aaron Nola, Ranger Suarez, Zach Wheeler. Forget the forget the Wheeler injury stuff. I'm just talking purely like their long-term value suddenly surrounded by maybe the worst defensive team in baseball. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess I didn't realize you were going with that, but it should have been obvious. <laughs> I, I'd have to look. I mean, it looks like, you know, Schwarber's going to be DH, so that'll save them. They still have Real Muto catching, which I still view as a huge plus. Uh, I think to me, that's the most important thing for most pitchers, except for extreme ground ball guys, which I believe Ranger Suarez is. So maybe affects him a little bit more. Um, I, they still have some decisions to make, right? Like, is it going to be DD Gregorius? Is it going to be Bryson Stott? You know, how much how much run is Alec Bohm going to get? So I think their defense has a chance to not quite be so bad. But at the end of the day, Nick Castellanos in the outfield, it's, it's not a good thing. I don't think long term I'm downgrading those guys that much. Are they are they really going to put Castellanos in the outfield and have Schwarber DH when, from what I can tell, Schwarber is clearly the better defender. I mean, so Chad, I'm with you. I don't, especially as a former catcher, you think he's just like he's he's got you know the instincts or whatever. But roster resource, for whatever reason, has Schwarber DHing and Castellanos in left field. And I don't mean to make it seem like that you know it's this gospel roster resource, but they're usually right, right? I mean, they're they're usually pretty good. They're following the news really closely, right? So they they are hearing and seeing stuff that not that we're not hearing and seeing. I don't think they have like sources that are, you know, they're not they're not like sneaking into dugouts or something like that. But just anything you might read, they've definitely looked at. And so I, I tend to to agree with you. They are probably pretty on it, but like 
I'm going to pull up some defensive numbers. And and I know defensive numbers are, uh, they're debatable, right? I mean, I think when we start talking about the advanced metrics for, for guys like Schwarber or Castellanos, they're not always reliable for a variety of reasons. The defensive metrics are still relatively new. They're harder to measure and so on. However, over the last three years, 2019, 2020, 2021, Kyle Schwarber in left field in 2200 innings has been a negative 10 DRS. And Nick Cassianos in 2700 innings has been a negative 20 DRS. That's a pretty significant, like, yes, Cassianos has got more innings. DRS is a counting stat, so you have more opportunities to do bad things. But even in the same number of innings, he'd be significantly worse. Their UZR per 150 is a negative 2.8 for Schwarber, a negative 4.2 for Castellanos. If I look at, the other thing we could look at is outs above average on Savant. If I look at outs above average on Savant, Nick Castellanos last year was in the fourth fourth percentile not 40th not 14th fourth percentile uh Kyle Schwarber was actually in the first percentile so maybe he maybe that that's the one that I see there Schwarber does look worse I don't know how much that's influenced by first base but that's a good I don't know everything else I look at so it's interesting outs above average Schwarber's been much worse like he looks around average ish by a lot of the defensive metrics but Looking at outs above average, he does not look like he's around average. He looks a lot worse than that. So does Cassianos. They're both they're both just atrociously bad, I guess, by that metric. <laughs> so maybe it doesn't matter. But I, I would have expected that you would DH Castellanos. He seems like the worst defender, but maybe I'm wrong. So do you think, because this is kind of how I feel, that the worst possible situation would be for them to put them in and out, you know, like Castellanos does it for a couple of days and then they'll put Schwarber in the field for a couple of days, because to me, that would be the worst possible solution to the situation. I think you got to pick one and commit. I don't know if I agree with that. What I, what I, I don't know these guys. Right. And so like, I think there are probably some players that struggle defensively when they don't, they can't get into a rhythm. They can't right? It's almost like hitting, right? If you're not in there every day, it's just harder to do. You get less opportunities to track fly balls and less opportunities to get used to the park and blah, 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 blah. I think there's probably other players for whom the like grind of playing the outfield day after day wears them down. And they might actually be better defensively if you said like, look, Monday and Tuesday, go all out because Wednesday you're going to be in the DH slot. And you're going to get a day off. So I don't know. They're going to have to like, they're going to have to figure that out. I think the other question is going to be like, do they want the flexibility to put other players in the DH slot? Cause like we've seen a lot of teams, right? More and more teams have moved away from the, like, this is our designated hitter and into a world where they use the DH to rest guys, things like that. Like, do they want to try to keep Harper rested by letting him DH sometimes? Do they want to try to keep Real Muto in the lineup? Like, I would have guessed Real Muto was going to DH for them a decent chunk of time before all this stuff happened. So, like, when you know, when when Philly has a day where Real Muto's not behind the plate, do they still want him as a DH occasionally? Like, is this team better off with Real Muto at DH? Schwarber in left, Castellanos in right, and Harper in center. 
than they are with Castellanos or Harper, like one of Castellanos and Schwarber in the corners with the other at DH. Harper staying in right. Odebel Herrera looks like their center fielder. And then not having Real Muto in the lineup. Like if Real Muto is your cleanup hitter, you want to get him in there as often as possible. And one way to do that is to bench your center fielder if you think you can do that. Now, Harper is a perfectly fine defender, but is not really a center fielder at this point in his career. So putting him in center with Schwarber and Castellanos on either side of him, like we've been we've been denigrating this defense for 20 minutes now, but it's only going to get worse if you do that. But like if you're going to bludgeon people to death, bludgeon them to death, I guess. Yeah, I mean, maybe their approach is uh, their outfield is not big, right? I mean, it's it's a small park. It's less ground to cover. And as long as you have a reasonable defense on the infield, get a little bit younger, get a little bit more flexible. It looks like they might have two left guys on the left side of the field. Then maybe it, maybe it works out. Still got one of the best catchers, but I don't know. I mean, I like all those solutions. I just don't know if any of them are going to work enough to make up for how poor they're going to be defensively. But let me ask you, Chad, before we move on from these two hunks, I felt like all drafts offseason, and, and this is a bias because I can't explain enough, or this is biased, I can't explain enough how much Kyle Schwarber meant to the Red Sox down the stretch. He, they were a completely different team. I, I just, it's not even, cl- I mean, look at the numbers, right? He, he was like an MVP. If we just went by the second half last year, Kyle Schwarber's an MVP candidate. Now, so is Bobby Dahlbeck, so I don't know how much you want to buy into that, but Kyle Schwarber is absolutely unbelievable. And so I felt like all offseason, this guy is being, <laughs> how is he not going higher in drafts? And so I looked at his ADP for on NFBC for the entire offseason, and it's there at 118. Since the trade, it's up to 106. He has a, he has a min pick of 79. Uh, do you still feel like that's too low? Like, I, I, what more does he have to do? I, I, I'm ready to commit completely to Kyle Schwarber as a top 100 player and potentially a top 80 player overall because I think he's that good and leading off for the Phillies, like... I don't know. It feels like a slam dunk here. So I'm pulling up my ranking that I used for our keeper cut draft Our one of our keeper cut listener drafts. It's our, our league two, which is our five by five head to head league. I have him 88th on my draft board. So yeah, I'm good with him as a top hundred guy. And looking at it now, I think there's a few guys that I've got ahead of him that I could probably, like, in redraft, right now I've got Max Muncy just ahead of him. In redraft, I probably put Schwarber ahead of Muncy just because there's a little bit more risk on Muncy this year. It's a two-catcher league, and so I've got JT Real Muto two spots ahead of Schwarber in a one-catcher league. He's lower. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, as I'm looking at this, like, I don't think it's that hard to see him. Like, I've got I've got Bobby Witt 79th in this. I don't have him that high in redraft. So, like, in redraft, if I'm looking at, like, NFBC ADP, uh, yeah, I could challenge that min pick on him. I could see that. I'm certainly going to be below, like below the ADP. We have, every time we talk That's about ADP, this is worst. Yeah, I am definitely going to take him ahead of his ADP in in redraft in keepers. Still, I'm still ahead of his ADP. I think his keeper value is still high. He is, you know, he's 29 years old. So I think that th- he's an interesting case where I think it depends how how far out you want to look because I'm looking two, three, maybe even four years out, which is usually as far out as I look. There's nothing about Schwarber that's concerning. If you're looking and that's actually one of the things like he signed a four year deal. He'll be 33 when this deal runs up. 
that sort of ideal time because I'm not sure I believe Schwarber is going to age particularly well, but that shouldn't factor in to the next four years, at least not in a significant way. So I think right now, yeah, I, yes, I'm, I, I think that's too low. I think I would take him ahead of that ADP. So can I, I'm going to give you some Schwarber ors. You ready? Okay, let's do it. Uh, Schwarber or Fran Mill Reyes? Uh, Schwarber. Okay, I'm, I'm with you there. I think if Fran Mill had outfield in most formats, I think it might be a little closer. People might be sleeping on him, but I'm definitely with you on Schwarber. Schwarber or, I just had it. Where did it go? Ryan Mountcastle. Oh, you know I like Mountcastle, um, <laughs> but I, I like Schwarber more. I, I, Mountcastle to me is like... Mountcastle versus Fran Mill is a more interesting conversation than either of them versus Schwarber. Fair, fair. I, I think I'm with you too. I, I definitely Schwarber. Now I'm going to leave out Bellinger and Yelich because to me, I think that's complete team construction. Like if you need to, like if you've gone really heavy pitching, then maybe you just take the risk that Yelich bounces back. Does that sound right? Yeah. Like it's tough to compare them. So then two more Schwarber or Mitch Haniger. Let's say not for keepers. Cause I think for keepers, it's definitely Schwarber, but for redraft. Still, still Schwarber. I think he's less risky than Haniger. I like what Haniger brings, but I, I, he's, you know, if you look at the last three years of history with these guys, like, yes, Schwarber broke out last year and was better than he's been. And so there's some risky reverts, but I'll, I'll still take, I'll still take him over Haniger. Fair. And there's actually two more now. Schwarber okay. or, and, and I know you're a fan of both of these players, Schwarber or Giancarlo Stanton? Stanton. Okay, I just think the upside I, on Stanton is is higher. I mean, uh, you you have the risk with Stanton of how much time he's going to actually play. Like that that is a fair concern, but like, I, I think people, I actually think people underrate Stanton for fantasy. Like he is a other than speed, he can bring you basically everything. Like he can do everything Schwarber can do for you, but better. I agree a hundred percent with that. And I think people also forget how bad the lineup was around Giancarlo Stanton last year. And he was still awesome. Now imagine if that lineup was actually good, which who knows, maybe it'll be bad again. And last one, Kyle Schwarber or Brian Reynolds, who is 92nd in ADP on NFBC. This is probably the toughest one. I, I think there's probably a, a team construction question here again, but in a different way, because Reynolds is going to help you a lot more in average. And so I'd probably go Reynolds. I think if I'm looking at those two, uh, to me at the end of the day, well, I'm looking at my rankings now and and I've got Reynolds higher and I'm looking at them and saying that a couple weeks ago, I would have said it's average versus home runs. Neither of them's given you a ton of anything on the bases, but it's average versus home runs. However, it is now average versus, well, Schwarber hitting leadoff means that the RBIs won't be as high, but that's a good enough lineup that he should still have some. He's going to get, I mean, Schwarber might score 120 runs with Castellanos and Harper hitting behind him. So I, I think with the lineup now, I might take Schwarber ahead of Reynolds, but whew, that's a tough one. I agree that's with really you. And I think. And I'm glad we we kind of ended with that being a tough one because the difference in ADP between those two right now is pretty substantial. And yet you and I were all in on Schwarber. And I should say before we wrap up the Schwarber love fest that yes, Chad touched on something so important there. You're not going to get anything in batting average. You're just not. But I think he he's going to be such a contributor in runs, potentially RBI. There's no pitchers hitting in the National League now. So it's not he's not going to have a zero in front of him. 
and obviously home runs. I think there's huge upside. I do want to get into more off-season news, but first we have to take a break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show Welcome back, everyone. Chad and I, Keeper Cut Podcast, wrapping up the big moves by the Phillies. We've been talking a lot of the signings, some of the stuff that went behind that. And before we we move on away from the technicalities, the non-fantasy-related stuff of the signings, Chad, I forgot you had an interesting theory about why Correa's contract is structured the way it is, and it has to do with Corey Seager's contract. And I just, I thought it was really interesting and informative, so I, I want to get that out there on the pod before we move on. Yeah, so I, I've talked about this a little bit. I don't know if I talked about it on Twitter or just in the auto news Slack or just to friends maybe. But uh, I, I have a theory that if you look at both of the big deals that the Rangers signed with Simeon and Seager early in the offseason, both of those were like, wow, those are big numbers. They're paying these guys for a lot of years with a lot of dollars. And I think the reason, part of the reason for that is the Rangers didn't look like they were going anywhere, right? If you go back before those signings, we were all looking at that lineup and we were like, okay, Josh Young should be good. Now he's hurt. He's not even there anymore. But like, you know, Nate Lowe is a totally fine first baseman. Maybe Solak can find something. Like they did not look like they were going anywhere. So if you're a Seager or a Simeon or another big free agent, like, and I think we saw the same thing with Bryant when he signed, like you're not going to a team like Texas or Colorado unless they really make it worth your while. And so my theory on both Seager and Simeon for that matter is that the Rangers, they came to the Rangers and said, we're not interested. And the Rangers said like, look, what are you getting elsewhere? And they were like, we're getting this. And the Rangers were like, we'll go 20% higher. We're just going to blow the market out of the water. Come play here. And they were like, okay. And I imagine they also to, you know, not to make it sound like it was just the money. I'm guessing they also sold those two on the fact that there was another big signing coming. I think Seager fell first. And so maybe Simeon, they didn't have to sell as much. But like, my guess is that when they talk to Seager, they're like, look, we're giving you 300 million. There's still 200 million we can throw out there. So I'm, I'm guessing that was part of it. But I think that Correa started the offseason thinking Seager will sign somewhere. Story will sign somewhere. I'm better than them. And he is, to be fair. Like, he's not, that's not, that's not like him having an ego trip or something. He's better than them. And so I think he thought Seager's going to sign somewhere. I'll get five, maybe 10% more than he does. Enough to be to be higher. Instead, Seager got 20% more than he should have, or than, than I think most of the market thought he would get. And so when Correa was going around then saying, okay, I want to beat the Seager deal, teams were like, we never would have given Seager that deal. So like we, we will pay you more than we would have paid Seager 
but that's going to be less than Seager got. And I think that Correa in his head had this idea that he was going to be the high, the highest paid shortstop. And the Rangers blew that up by breaking the market for Seager. And I wonder, you know, you were asking them like, well, why didn't they just go after Correa and offer him? I don't know if they didn't. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if they offered something like that to Correa and he was like, no, 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 I want to, I want to wait for someone else to set the market so I can beat it. I don't know if they offered it to him and he was like, I am not going to the Rangers. Like, I don't know. Or if they just liked Seager better. Like, I don't know. But my sense is that, you know, we, we hear about this all the time, that guys want to sign a contract and you see it in the numbers, right? Every, every elite player, like, you know, Trout signs a deal that's slightly higher than Harper's deal. And like it, you get these kinds of things that that just circulate over time that people always want to be the biggest, the best. And I think Seager jumped so far above where it was expected that all of a sudden Correa couldn't top him. And so instead he ended up in this like, I can't get the 10-year deal I want because no one was going to give him 10 350 which is what it would have taken to top Seager basically. And so he ended up on a one-year, effectively a one-year deal. Like, I think this is a one-year deal. I think he'll opt out and go back in the market next year, but we'll see. I, so that is the the mind of Chad Young right there. I love that theory. I'm going to go as far as to say I think that is the most likely reason for whatever happened here. I also, I think contributing to it, obviously, is that every other like major spender, it feels like, has a shortstop or has a shortstop coming. Right. Like Bogarts doesn't want to move off of shortstop. It's going to hurt the market with story. And and the Yankees didn't wouldn't even move Anthony Volpe for Matt Olson. So they clearly think they have something there. The Mets have Francisco Lindor, like all these big spending teams have shortstops. And so I think that obviously hurt him as well. But I love that theory. Chad, I want to chat third base, if that's OK with you, because it, it's kind of affect all of the news we've had this offseason. We could circle around this trio of third basemen that I'm going to ask you to rank. Can you rank for me a apparently 100% healthy Anthony Rendon, a Coors Field Chris Bryant, and Austin Riley, who you and I were high on, who we like, but I think all of a sudden, like, this is a conversation. So uh, it's a hard one because an apparently 100% like healthy Rendon, like apparently is doing a lot of work there. (laughs) Best shape of his life. Yeah, best shape (laughs) of his life. So to me, I think Riley is still a step ahead of those other two. I think from a talent perspective, an offensive talent perspective at this point in his career, I trust his talent more than I trust Bryant's. And from a health perspective, I trust his health a lot more than I trust Rendon's. The other two, I, I had Bryant ahead of Rendon already. A chunk of that is concern about health, and so maybe I move Rendon up. A chunk of that is Bryant having outfield eligibility to go with third base, so he has some some added value from that perspective. I and I think I think the good news about Rendon's health versus the the Coors Field news. I don't know. I, I you know I always like I've become I, I've been very vocal the last few years that I don't play too strongly into like, oh, this guy's leaving cores and therefore he's going to be terrible. And it more and more, it's occurring to me that like that has to work both ways, right? If I, if I don't believe that story leaving cores is going to hurt him a ton, then how excited can I be about Bryant going to course? Because the reality is like this drastically increases the likelihood that Bryant is a platoon guy for fantasy, that you use him at home and you don't use him on the road. 
because it's not just that he's going to be what he was on the road and then better at home. He's going to be better at home than he's been because Coors is great. He's going to be worse on the road than he's been because Coors is going to have this, this road effect. So I think the short answer to this is like, I probably am moving Bryant up a little because I like, as much as I say like, Oh, story leaving Colorado doesn't really hurt. He moves down a little bit. Like it's not, it's not nothing. Um, It's just not as big as people think it is, but Bryant moving up, I'll move Brian up a little. I'll move Rendon up a little. I would probably like I I have them both in my rankings. I have them both borderline top 100. And if I'm around pick 100 and I need a third baseman, I I don't know. It depends a little bit on like league depth and stuff like that. Like I'd probably lean Bryant. I'd probably lean Bryant because of the position eligibility just being a tiebreaker, but they're very close. That's fair. I mean, in keeper leagues, first of all, I definitely agree with the ranking. I think it's very clearly Riley, Bryant, Rendon, obviously age and injury, both concern for Rendon age less. So I think he could still give some good years ahead, but injury is definitely a factor in there. Chad, normally I'm with you 150% when it comes to how much we as an industry overrate course fields for certain things. In this particular instance, for this particular player, I do think it's significant. Now, I, I need to understand what goes in, and maybe you know, and I'll, I'll I'll let you talk about this in a minute, and what goes into expected home runs by ballpark, because according to StatCast, in 2021, if he's played all of his games at Coors, Chris Bryant would have hit 10 home runs. And that, that is absolutely mortifying. I don't know if this is a glitch for me, if I need to refresh the page, or what the heck's going on there. So my, my understanding of that, is that they are they're not accounting for things like weather or altitude what they're looking at is like this ball went this direction this many feet would it right. or would it not be a home run in this park and Coors Field from that perspective is a terrible park for hitters because it's huge so a ball that goes like a a, a ball that gets out of you know Fenway not Fenway I'm thinking my wrong old ballpark. The ball that gets out of Wrigley, <laughs> where, where Bryant spent most, you know, the most of last year, hit the, the like a ball that gets out of Wrigley based on the distance it traveled very well might not get out of course. However, a ball hit at the same angle with the same amount of force is going to travel further at course. Sure. So I think that what that's saying is like a lot of his balls didn't travel far enough to clear the fences at cores, but if he had actually hit them in cores, they would have traveled further. And so that's not really being accounted for. Uh, so I think. that makes total sense to me. I mean, I, cause how, how would they be able to factor that in? I guess that would be, that would be odd, but I, first of all, I guess that's still somewhat concerning. I'm not going to say the cores park is a bad park for him. So I, I guess I don't know what my point is in that regard, but it, that just stood out to me and it looks crazy. I guess I just didn't realize course was so big, but for players who like, like, let's say the the Rockies did end up signing Chris uh, Kyle Schwarber, right? They were in on him earlier. Like, I don't know how much that really changes because I already viewed Kyle Schwarber as like a 40 homer guy. So what's he going to do? Hit 45? Like, sure. But with a player like Chris Bryant, whose power is pretty questionable, in my opinion, anyway, he dealt with a lot of shoulder stuff. He just hasn't been the same player. Now that he's going to cores for half his games, I do feel a little bit differently about him. And then you factor in how shallow the position is. I have moved Chris Bryant up to 
basically my fifth third baseman. And I'm having that internal conversation about Austin Riley. Cause I do think for a player of his profile, I like the switch a lot. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think for, for a guy whose value is primarily going to have to come from power. Cause like he's not stealing you a bunch of bases or anything like that. I think that makes a bigger difference, right? I think it, you know, a guy who you're you're drafting as a you know an all around player, it's, it's a different story. I think Bryant, he's like he's not going to get a lot of help with runs and RBIs in in Colorado. Like obviously the offense will be good because the offense is going to be like that lineup is not going to be great. He's going to hit for a ton of power for sure. So it's worth moving him up, I think. And I, and I think you're probably right. I'm probably underrating the impact on him versus your average, you know, top 120 fantasy player. Right. Because I think you're right. He probably is sort of the exact right profile to benefit from course. So I do want to talk a little bit. I, we'll get more into the signings, but I want, to, I want to make sure we spend some time on injuries because there's been a lot. I know your TGFBI team, when I saw your last message, that just made me so sad because the season hasn't even started yet. But I'm going to throw the four pitchers out there. One of them is significantly less significant. I don't know if that really makes all that much sense. Then the other three, Jack Flaherty, Chris Sale, let me just have a moment of silence. And Zach Gallon, as well as Alex Reyes, but really Flaherty, Sale, and Gallon, all guys taken. I mean, the first two that had been, what, ADP above 60 or below 60, you know what I mean. And then Zach Gallon's still kind of a borderline top 100 fantasy player. I'm actually worried about Gallon. You say you're not super worried. What are your thoughts here on these 300 pitchers? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm having different. I'm having different conversations about them, if that makes sense. So Flaherty, Flaherty, I'm legitimately wondering in some cases if I need to move on. In redraft, that's an that's an easier choice, I think, right? Like if he's not going to help for even, even if he doesn't help for half the season and comes back brilliantly, in some redraft formats, you know, depending on whether you have IL spots, stuff like that, like it, it may just be the right decision to move on. I think people sometimes hold on too long to guys like that. In keeper leagues, it depends a bit on his cost. So like someone on the, the Pitchless Discord the other day was asking about who their keepers were. And one of their options was a 21st round Jack Flaherty. And if I can keep a 21st round Jack Flaherty for the next couple years, like I'm willing to take the gamble on this year. Because the reality is my 21st round pick might suck anyways. <laughs> and so if, if I get half a season of Jack Flaherty, that's better than what I'm getting for a 21st round pick regardless. And then hopefully in 2023, I get a, you know, whether it's still a 21st round pick or maybe moves up to a 20th round pick or even a 19th, like I still get a very late Jack Flaherty for a full season. Fine. But if it's a higher cost, like if I'm in a keeper league where I have like a seventh round, six round Jack Flaherty, and I ha I still have time to make that decision. I think he might be gone. I think I might move on from him, especially if I have other good keeper choices. So uh, Flaherty, like that's where my head is. Like he's out, he's out indefinitely. They said, now I think that's because they don't know. I don't think that means he's out for, you know, till the all-star break or something, but he might be. And so I don't know, unless he's a clear keeper, I'm moving on in. Yeah. In sales case, I think we have a better sense of what the timeline is. But again, like, so I'm looking at like our, our keeper cut listener, Otto New League. And we talked, we talked about this last week and I was like, oh, I love my rotation. I, you know, my $27 Nola and $22 Montas and $20 Snell. And I've got a $9 Montgomery. And like, I really like where this is going. 
but a $24 sale was part of that. Yeah. And I'm looking at that league now and like, I've got $16 to spend. So I'm not in like an, in a hurry to get to clear cap space, but I'm also looking at our ongoing auctions right now. And there's this outfielder that you signed with the Cubs by the name of Seiya Suzuki, who was available. And I don't know if I decide I'm going to go, like I have to figure out how much I want to pay Suzuki. But like I, like I said, I have $16 to spend. If I decide I want to go to like 25 on him, the easiest way for me to clear the money I need to get to him might be to cut sale. And I, I'm just, I mean, how long is he shut down for? He's according to Heim Bloom, he is weeks away from quote picking up a baseball. Right. So let, let's assume weeks. He didn't say months. So let's assume weeks is less than two months. Call it six weeks. Sure. Then that puts us in basically May 1st that he's picking up a baseball. That means that if everything goes well, he he might be able to make a June 1st debut. Maybe. Right. I mean, most pitchers start throwing in like December, January. Then they come to camp in March. They really work their way up. So like realistically, actually, let's give him, you know, the first two weeks of, of May to do his sort of off season stuff. And then four weeks until mid-June, getting to maybe early July before he's actually worked his way through sort of a spring training type experience in in double A or wherever it is he goes to do that. Like, I I don't know. I, I, I'm, I like sale at $24, but it may be time to just sort of, I don't know. I've got a couple days at least to decide. Maybe I don't even need to cut him for that. But like, he is a guy that in a league where I need the space, if the keeper cost again, if the keeper cost is special, you know, if I had a if I had a ten dollar Chris sale, I'll, I'll hold on to him. Fine, but if the keeper cost isn't special, and I'm not sure twenty four dollars it is, it could be. But it but there's some like there was already risk with sale because he was coming back from injury, and we still don't know what he's going to look like, and blah 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 blah. So like, I I think he's another that I, in the right situation where there's a, where's a a meaningful benefit to moving on. I may be moving on. And again, in, in redraft, I think it's an even easier choice. Gallon, on the other hand, is already thrown. Real quick on those two, just yeah. because I, I'm, I'm let, I'm much, <clears throat> what's the words here? I'm still concerned about Gallon, even though you're right, he's throwing, so he's in a better position than those two. I just don't view him in the same light, obviously. I do think format matters for Flaherty and Sale, especially Sale. So Flaherty worries me because it's an arm injury, especially a shoulder one. Like at any moment, he could be done, right? I'm not a doctor, but like it doesn't sound good to have a tear in your shoulder when you throw baseball for a living. But with that said, I mean, this was my concern about Flaherty, and I'm not victory lapping an injury. I didn't predict an injury. What I was predicting was an innings cap because this is a guy who since 2019, think about how long ago 2019 was. That was before COVID. We had a different president. Like that was a long time ago. In 2019, he yeah, he made 33 starts. Since then, he hasn't even thrown 120 innings combined. So I, I wasn't expecting a full season from him anyway. So if you're in a head-to-head league where – as long as you're in contention when he comes back, then it doesn't matter. Then this is actually a good thing because instead of him like getting shut down or a phantom IL stint, maybe this is that extra period of time off. I think that's more the case with Sale because Flaherty still concerns me where Sale was coming off Tommy John surgery and it's awful as a Red Sox fan. This stinks, but at least it's not an arm injury. So you get him back June 1st if you're in a head-to-head league. Like it's as if yet. You had him since the beginning. If you're still floating around 500 or above in yeah. contention, 
and now you can just roll them out there and you're and you're rolling so i in those formats i'm less concerned but yeah yeah and i I think even in even in like a roto, you know, season long roto or points league or something like that. I mean, at least there is a I don't want to say there's like a clear date that sale will be back because there could always be setbacks and stuff like that. But like there's something mysterious wrong with Flaherty's shoulder is way like the likelihood that that lingers forever <laughs> is much greater than like we, we know there is a clear path forward for sale. The, the break needs to heal and then he'll be back and it'll be fine. You know, knock on wood, right? There's always risk there, but it's not as risky. So, but then you talk about Gallon and like, I mean, Gallon here, so I'm looking at a report from MLB.com from Steve Gilbert at MLB.com covers the D-backs. Here's what he, what he wrote about three days ago was that Gallon threw his first bullpen session. He, this was on Tuesday. So a little more than three days ago, Tuesday, he threw his first bullpen session Gallon said it felt good. It felt good to go out there. All stuff he would say. Here's the description of what had happened, though. He started ramping up in December, and he, quote, he felt some stiffness in his shoulder and went for an MRI. Stiffness. So not pain, just stiffness. It was December. He hadn't thrown for a little while. His shoulder was a little stiff. Fine. Gallon said it was nothing he was worried about. Nothing I was super worried about. I wanted to be proactive about it. The last thing you want to do is get behind the eight ball, and the next thing you know, you're playing catch up. Okay. After getting the MRI results, Gallon didn't stop throwing completely, but also didn't go as hard as he usually did. So he never stopped throwing. He never got shut down. He never, like, he just took more time ramping up. And then it said whether he's able to start the year on the active roster remains to be seen. So here's what we know. We know that he felt stiffness. It wasn't a lot of pain. We know that he got an MRI. And that after he got, like, sometimes, you know, guys get MRIs and they say, oh, we didn't see anything problematic there, but we're shutting him down to be safe. And you're like, you didn't see anything problematic. They didn't even shut him down. He got an MRI and was like, yeah, I'm going to keep throwing. I'm just not going to throw as hard. I'll let my shoulder work its way back. So, like, all of that adds up to me. And then they're saying, we don't know if he'll be ready for opening day. Now, I think that's optimistic. One of the quotes from Gallon here, the last quote from Gallon is, I feel pretty good staying on this pace and being ready for opening day. That's what Gallon said on Tuesday. I don't know that I buy that. If I'm drafting Gallon, I'm assuming mid-April, but that is a very different assumption than, like, I'm guessing Gallon misses two to three starts. Let's put it that way. There's risky misses more. In a head-to-head league, I literally don't care. This basically doesn't change his value for me. Actually, I'm going to I'm gonna go on the record here and say something. We are waiting in Keeper Cut, the Keeper Cut Listener League, the head-to-head league. We have one of our leagues at Dead League. We are waiting for a guy named John Ball, uh, who you might want to text or something, to make his two picks at the turn between the 15th and 16th rounds. I pick after him. Don't tell him this. Okay, he'll hear this Monday. If he doesn't take Gallon with one of these two picks, I'm taking Gallon as my pick in the 16th. He's still on the board. He shouldn't be on the board this late. It's a head-to-head league. I don't care if he misses April. I don't even care, to be honest, if he misses May. And I think there's a chance that he is the opening day starter for the D-backs. So I'm going out and I'm drafting him. So that that's how I feel about Gallon. I'm not thinking about him at all in my keeper leagues, especially because right now his cost is pretty low. So when I say I'm not thinking about him all. I'm not thinking about the injury at all. I, w- I want Gallon everywhere I can get him right now. Because I think his cost has gone down out of line with what the the injury situation is. So yeah. So hopefully you just texted your brother and told him to to make his picks. But make sure he, don't tell him that I want Gallon. 
I already I already made this mistake two rounds ago where I said there are two players I I, I hope nobody takes and then Josh Bell went like five picks later <laughs> and then of all people you <laughs> took Trent Grisham from me you just you were you like I liked him I know I know you do and I and I the reality is I didn't think there was any chance Bell or Grisham were getting back to me at that point I had a real tough choice in that league because in the tenth round. I have this group of guys between like the ninth and the 11th round who I love. And they all go in this range. And in the ninth, I took to Brian Hayes. And in the 10th, I was like, do I want a first baseman in Bell? Do I want another outfielder in Grisham? But I'd already taken Kyle Tucker and Cedric Mullins. And not, on, not only is Grisham, would not only would he be my third outfielder at that point, actually my fourth outfielder, because I took Stanton in the eighth round. So not only would he have been my fourth outfielder already, but like, Tucker Mullins Grisham there's a lot of similarities there right and and so I was like ah forget it I'm gonna go with Adamas because you know how I feel about Willie Adamas as well right so I was like I'm gonna go pick at Willie Adamas and I just didn't think Bell or Grisham were gonna fall anyways I was right they didn't but I ended up getting another one of my favorites next I got I got Mountcastle next so I'll get over <laughs> it I could I could always pick out your team without looking at the name <laughs> I, I did in our group chat for, for those who are not in the group <coughs> chat about this draft, I did announce that um, this is going to be the last episode of keeper cut because Pete stole Trent Christian <laughs> from me and I can't keep working with him, but that was a couple days ago. We're here recording. So obviously I got over it. Yeah. So long as you don't take Tanner Houck, you know, we'll, we'll continue to be over it, but I do want to tack on with gallon that uh, honestly, the, the shoulder stuff, the recent stuff, the MRI isn't even really my concern. It's, it's the fact that he had a UCL sprain back in May. And so I've always kind of looked at his ranking and thought like, really, he wasn't that great last year. And he dealt with the UCL sprain that kind of concerns me, but maybe that's playing it too safe because he had it in May. He came back for at least August and September and he wasn't great. I, I think there were some things we could pull from it that were pretty good though. And obviously he feels pretty healthy. The spring training It's just guys like that. Once you hear UCL spring, it does kind of feel like a ticking time bomb. Chad, I want to leave the next topic up to you because there's just no shortage of news and there's so much we haven't covered. As a matter of fact, the best player moved this offseason we haven't even talked about. So I'll run through a list and and pick something out. We got Freddie Freeman going to the Dodgers. We got Matt Olson going to the Braves. We got Chris Bassett going to the Mets. We got Kevin Smith. Not that he deserves to be in the same breath as those other guys, but kind of an interesting player that I, I think you gave me some good stats on there going to Oakland in exchange for Matt Chapman, who's on his way to Toronto. We kind of talked about Correa and Mini, but not so much the the fantasy effects. Luke Voigt going to San Diego and certainly moves that could potentially happen. It looks like the Yankees are getting pretty serious about Trevor Story and, and, and all the other names that have moved this offseason are certainly up for discussion. So pick something out and, and let's hear about it. So let me let me try. Just, I'm going to quickly rattle uh, three of these moves, actually four players, because I don't think I don't think we need to say a bunch about them because it's been said. Freddie Freeman and Matt Olson were the number two and number three fantasy first baseman behind Vlad. They have been all off season. There was some, I think, you know, Alonzo versus Olson debate. I was always higher on Olson than Alonzo, and there was a possibility he was going to get out of Oakland. Now he's out of Oakland. To me, this doesn't really move anything there. They're still my second and third guys. It is maybe more clear to me now that I would take Olsen over Alonzo, but I was over, I was taking him over Alonzo anyways, so fine. Correa in Minnesota, looking at those Savant Park factors, like any move that Correa made was going to be not great for him because 
he's coming from Minute Maid, where the overall park factor is 11th in baseball for right-handed hitters. The home run park factor is ninth in baseball. Moving to target field is like target field is the 20th best home run park factor for right-handed hitters. It is a, and, and for in terms of overall park factor, it is the, it is even worse. It is the 26th overall park factor for right-handed hitters. So this is not a great move for him. Anything was going to be a not ideal move. It's almost like the, the opposite of, or similar to what we're talking about with Castellanos before, like any move Castellanos made out of great American was going to be bad for him, but he ended up somewhere that isn't, isn't that bad. This feels like it's a pretty significant downgrade. The lineup is not, the lineup is good in Minnesota, but it is not as good. This doesn't, I just, I don't know. I felt all off season, like people have been under drafting Correa. And so maybe this moves him up a little bit. Cause at least there's some certainty there, but this doesn't change a lot for me with him, despite the fact that it's a worse part. Cause I just think he's that good a hitter. So, but this does I, like his numbers won't be as good as they were last year, but I was already expecting that. So talk about Freeman, talk about Olsen, Correa, Luke Voigt. Like I like Luke Voigt. He has to stay healthy. He has to stay on the field. This is a great move for him. Yes. He's leaving Yankee stadium. That's not ideal, but like the Yankees were just actively not using him. And as much as like, everyone likes to talk about the the Padres and the Padres are fun. Like they've got Tatis when he's healthy. Eventually they've got, they've got Grisham who you and I both like. They've got Cronenworth who's kind of fun. That lineup is actually terrible. Like, especially with Tatis out there are, they, they really lack good bats right now. If I go to, you know, we talked about roster resources, not necessarily the like be all end all of, of what's going on. They right now have jerks and profile as their left fielder. They have Will Myers in right field, which is fine. Voigt's their DH. Voigt and Machado are probably their two best hitters, right? Like, I, you can make a case for Grisham or Cronenworth, but then you've got Hosmer, Myers, Austin Nola, Jerks, and Profar, and Haseon Kim, who, like, I like Kim, but whew. until they got Voigt, they had Nomar Mazzara in their outfield. Like, th- this team has some <laughs> real issues, I think. I like this. I think there is – the nice thing for Voigt is – as long as he's healthy, there is nobody pushing him for playing time. Nobody. Like the bench right now in in San Diego is Victor Carantini, Jorge Alfaro, Domingo Leba, and Trace Thompson, according to Roster Resource. And we'll see if that sticks. There's other, but there's nobody pushing him for playing time. He's going to be locked in. I think that's that's a great a great move for him. So those are the ones I wanted to do kind of on the, the relatively quick side. The, the two that are more interesting, Bassett out of Oakland. People love this deal for the Mets, which I get. Bassett's a very good pitcher. I am... I don't want to say I'm out on Bassett, because I think that's too strong a statement. I am fading Bassett. Uh, and I will not be drafting him as early as I think other people will. For a couple reasons. First of all, he's gone through... You know, his last two years have been excellent. He was very good in 2018 as well. His ex... FIP has consistently been much higher than his ERA. Now, XFIP assumes a league average home run per fly ball rate. And other than that 2019 year that I, that I left out of my good years for him, he's had a below league average home run per fly ball rate. And pitchers can keep their home run per fly ball rate down. There are reasons to be comfortable with that. However, I'm not really sure. I think those reasons are 
apply here. And I think that this park change, like City Field is not a, a tremendous hitters park by any means, but the home run park factor for City Field is 104, a little bit above average. Oakland is 82. Last year, out of 129 pitchers who threw 100 plus innings, Bassett had the 52nd lowest ground ball rate. So the 52nd worst ground ball rate, little little worse than middle of the pack. The 46th highest fly ball rate. So again, worse than middle of the pack, more like sort of the bottom third-ish. But the seventh best home run per fly ball rate. If that home run per fly ball rate is heavily influenced by the park, and I think it is, and it reverts to closer to league average, he's going to post a line much more in line with his like his XFIP, which was 3.93 last year, but over the last three years, let's even say it over the last two years, has been 4.03. Over the last four years, it's been 4.23. So all of a sudden, I'm viewing Bassett not as a guy who's going to post a mid-threes ERA, but as a guy who's going to post a closer to four ERA, maybe even over four. So I'm, I am, I do not like this move for Bassett, even more so in keeper leagues where I think it's going to hurt his value and he's 33. So like if you pay cost to get him in a keeper league this year, and then he has a down year, even if he's good, he's going to have a down year. Then he's going to be 34 going into next season, coming off a year where you can't keep him because his cost was too high. I, I, I think like, I'm just, I, I doubt I'll end up with Bassett much, if at all, the rest of this offseason. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I haven't really been in on Bassett anyway. I typically skew towards pitchers who strike out a ton of guys, which is why I'll take, you know, I'll wait for a Tanner Houck as opposed to taking a safer Chris Bassett. From a baseball perspective, it kind of feels like a, just a replacement for Marcus Stroman. I've never really viewed Marcus Stroman as all that special. I think Bassett is going to have a better whip, but otherwise it's going to feel like a replacement, right? Like a guy who can go deep into games, keep the ball on the ground, maybe get a lot of wins because of that. So from a fantasy perspective, I obviously like Bassett's win potential more, but an ERA close to four with not exciting strikeout numbers kind of feels like Marcus Stroman or Chris Bassett. And I, that's why I kind of view it as a replacement there from a keeper's perspective. If you can sell high, which I doubt you can, then I would, because I just don't think it gets better for Chris Bassett from here. It might not get much worse, but it's definitely not going to get better than the last two seasons. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, he does a good job of, of suppressing hard contact, which is fine. But like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not in, I'm, I'm not in. <laughs> the other name you mentioned though, that I am is someone I am in on. And now I, I'm like, I'm super frustrated with myself because I've had this guy on my like late round, maybe draft list all off season, literally all off season. He's been one of the guys who when drafts end, I'm like, man, if there was one more round, I might've taken him, but I didn't see a path to playing time. And that is Kevin Smith. So Kevin Smith went from, as you said, he went in the Matt Chapman deal to Oakland. Oakland, obviously not a great landing spot, except they got to play somebody on that team. And he's going to, he should have a pretty clear path to playing time. If you look at his numbers over the last few years, in 2018, he had 25 home runs, 19 steals. In 2019, he had 19 and 11. In 2021, he had 22 and 18. Now, most of that was in the minors, but he posted 2020 ish 
numbers across the minors, across multiple levels over the last three seasons he's played. He didn't play at all in 2020 because of the lack of a minor league existence. His WRC plus in AAA last year was 144. 2019, he struggled a bit in AA, which was his first taste of the high minors. He had a 93 WRC plus, but before that, he had a 127 in high A, a 190 in, in A. Like, this guy is a guy who has consistently hit and has a real nice power speed combination. He's 25 years old, and there is no way Oakland traded for a 25 year old prospect that they didn't expect to put in the lineup. And if they put him in the lineup, like, He's also hit for pretty high averages. Um, the one year he didn't, the one time he didn't have a high average was that 2019 season. He had a pretty low BAPIP. I don't think he's going to hit like, you know, 280 or something like that. But I think this is a guy, I mean, his, like his projections, Steamer projects him for a 17 home run, 10 stolen base season in 112 games. Zips has him at 20 home runs, 12 stolen bases in 117 games. The, his projections for batting average are in like the 220s, 230s. I think he can post a higher batting average than that. And I think he can get more than the 450-ish plate appearances they're projecting. So, I, you know, you want a guy who is not going to help you in average, but could, but could maybe be a threat for 2020 with your last round draft pick. Like, I, I really like what Kevin Smith could bring to the table. Yeah, I like that. I, I had no idea about the speed to be honest with you. And I think because it's at such a premium, if you're thinking, well, this is a guy who's going to get at least consistent playing time, plenty of burn for a team that has no reason to not let him run. I think that could be, that could be pretty interesting. So Chad, before we wrap things up here, are there any other items? Because there's just been so much that we want to touch upon. Certainly the Tatis injury, we haven't even gotten a chance to talk about anything that we want to end with before we sign off for the week. No, I mean, I think, you know, plenty out there about the Tatis injury. We could probably talk in more detail about the keeper implications for that. But like, he's so good that unless your keeper cost is absurdly high, I'm not sure if this changes much. Like, we're still looking at him long, long term. (laughs) Mackenzie Gore threw a good inning yesterday. And (laughs) that seems like nothing except like, we've been waiting a long time to see. Yeah. (laughs) So, and and like, you know, we were talking about the, the Padres like lineup issues they are they're better on the pitching front and you know they've got musgrove darvish snell clevenger but then nick martinez is their fifth clevenger has been out for a while darvish is getting up there in age like there there is possibly some room and they certainly could use some help in the pen if gore isn't ready for the rotation like Gore is also another interesting sort of late draft guy for me. I think like if he starts to put together a solid spring and looks like he might break camp with the team, man, I mean, I'm pretty intrigued by him. Like maybe they don't believe he can really like work his way back to the rotation. They don't have an obvious closer. So I'm, I'm intrigued by Gore. I want to see a little more from him because I've been burned by him before, but man, it was nice to see him do something positive. Even Yeah, he definitely, he definitely seems like the type of guy, at least in Ottenew, where maybe people held on and they were like, I, I, I can't rationalize keeping a $7, $8 McKenzie Gore, and now he might be available in your auction. So he's definitely a guy I would consider throwing a buck or two at. Otherwise, for sure. Folks, Ottenew, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm sure there's going to be plenty to unpack in our next episode. The moves are coming in hot and heavy. I'm, I'm going to need to vent about Trevor Story going somewhere else, potentially to the rival Yankees. So that might take up half of our next show. So prepare for that. Thank you for dealing with me being sick 
again episode 51 in the books please follow us at at keep or cut follow chad at at chad young and follow me at at pete the baseball will be right back next monday with more baseball news and keeper league updates see you later